welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. Today I'm speaking to Gordon Peake. Gordon's work as an international development consultant has led him to some of the world's farthest flung places. Two residency books have come out of it so far, one on Timor-Leste and one on Bougainville, an island off Papua New Guinea that hopes to become an independent country. Both places were once besieged by anthropologists, and now they're overrun with Western aid workers. Foreign aid is a core theme of both books. It's a world that few of us encounter beyond the headlines. The inside stories Gordon shares about this big money world of global development will surprise you. Some are hilarious clashes of culture. Others are tales of ineffective conferences at high-priced hotels with expense accounts to match. And as always on Personal Landscapes, we also talk about fascinating places at the farthest corners of the map. I hope you find it as interesting as I did. Gordon Peake, welcome to Personal Landscapes. Thanks, Ryan. It's really nice to be here. It's um, I really enjoy the podcast, and I was really glad that you had one of my, I think, favorite authors on about a year ago or so, Nigel Barley. Oh, right. Yeah, his yeah, book, yeah. His book, The Innocent Anthropologist, was such a uh, was such an important book for me to read because um, I, I think it actually. I mean, I'm from an academic background um, myself, and it taught me what you can that you can actually the bandwidth for what you can actually do in academic writing is much wider than uh, than sometimes you might think. So nice to be really, really nice to be on the show. Yeah, that's a good point, because that's very much what your work has done, or your your books, at least. Uh, I really enjoyed the new one, by the way. That's coming out any day now, isn't it? It's, co- it's coming out in early December. Your work as a consultant on international development has taken you to some pretty interesting parts of the world, including Bougainville, which is the the subject of unsung land, aspiring nation. Um, I suspect that's a place that few people have heard of and even fewer could locate it on a map. So could you uh, locate it for us and then give us a sense of uh, why you went there? So Bougainville is, if I guess there's probably two parts to this question. For first, I'm going to say where it is. And then the question is, where is that? Because I'm in, uh, I'm in Washington, D.C. at the minute. And when I tell people that I spent a lot of time in Papua New Guinea, People often ask me, "Is that in West Africa or is that in East Africa?" <laughs> wow! And of course, and of course, Papua New Guinea is not is not either that. It's half of the island of of New Guinea uh, that's located just above um, just above Australia, uh, and on the farthest flung edge of Papua New Guinea is a group of islands uh, that are collectively known as Bougainville. Bougainville is the largest of the islands in that chain. Uh, there's another sort of decent-sized island called uh, Buka, and there's a bunch of atolls um, that are connected to it as well. So it's collectively it forms a place that is known as the autonomous region of Bougainville. So is that just above the Solomon Islands, more or less? It's to, it's to the I'm left-handed, so I always get confused with <laughs> rights and left. I'm not very good for a ge- for a geography podcast. It is to the west of Solomon Islands. Okay. Yeah. And it is Bougainville itself is considered to be part of the the sort of Solomon's chain of 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 island, sort of in the vicinity of um, the Trobrian Islands as well, wouldn't it be? It's sort of in the vicinity of the Tro- of the Trobrian Islands, um, and like the Trobrian Islands, it was another kind of anthropologist playground for for a long time. Uh, anthropologists used to go there in order to. There's a, a woman I write about in the book who's called Beatrice Blackwood, who's an Oxford anthropologist, and she went there because there was no white people to be found, and she wanted to find the splendid isolation. Um, she thought that she would find there. Of course, she finds some of that, but she discovered a lot about herself at the same time. That's something I want to ask you about. Actually, that's one of my uh, the parts of the book I found most interesting. But we should, before before we go there, tell tell us why you went there of all places. How did you end up here? The, the tale, the much much of the kind of preamble to a lot of books about people who end up in New Guinea or Papua New Guinea or in, in Bougainville, as I do, are filled with tales of woe or tales of flight. Uh, it's one of those places that has historically attracted people who are trying to flee from somewhere else. And I guess in some ways I was trying to do that myself. I have a have a really happy, happy marriage. My wife is a diplomat. 
Her name is Suzanne. And we were in, of all places, we were in Zimbabwe, where she was the head of mission. She was the Australian head of mission in Zimbabwe. Now, as you say, I've been sort of traveling around a lot of my career, and I often wondered why diplomatic spouses looked so unhappy, why they were, you know, slightly mottled through drinking too much, or they had a, they were kind of pre pressing the send receive button a bit too quickly, or on social media a bit too much. And then I became one, and I totally understood. Um, it is, you know, I've never been particularly good at being seen and not heard. Uh, when you're a diplomatic spouse, that is the job description. You have to be seen and not heard. And when you're an ambassador's spouse, it's even more important to be seen and not heard. And, you know, after three or four months, I, I could feel myself just slipping into a pit. I, could, I thought, you know, this is miserable. I totally love my wife, but I don't think I could stick this for another three years. And I didn't want to have the fate that other trailing spouses had. Um, even the term itself, trailing spouses, kind of imbued with such misery. Um, you know, there was one of the other spouses that had, had I guess we got to say, allegedly uh, attacked the chef um, with a kitchen knife. <laughs> and, and I thought, I just don't want to be a, this unhappy person for another three years. Um, and I was you know, scouting around LinkedIn, which is always the kind of last refuge of the procrastinator. <laughs> and I saw this um, this advert for a job in Bougainville. I'd been there before a couple of times, and I largely took it, Ryan, you know, to be frank with you, because it was as far away from Zimbabwe as possible. It was as far away from this closeted kind of um, golden cage that that we were that we were that we were living in. And I'd been, I mean, I'd been there before, and I also thought it would be an interesting place to go to in, in any respect, in any respects, because it was a place then that was about to embark upon the final stage of its journey towards a referendum on independence. Bougainville is not particularly well known today, today but in the in the in the late eighties and the and the early nineties, the largest conflict in the Pacific since the Second World War took place. Uh, there was a peace agreement in 2001, and one of the component parts of this peace agreement was that there would be a referendum uh, on the countries, uh, on the, uh, I guess that's a sort of Freudian slip, on the region's future status. So it was a kind of interesting period of, of, of time uh, to, to be there, and it was a, a, a really important time in, in my life, probably a different time in my life emotionally to what it felt like when I when I lived and worked in, in Timor-Leste, which was the subject of my first book. But I went there in 2016. I, I stayed until about 2019. I'm happy to say that my marriage survived and it's sort of still, you know, still happily married um, and with our, with, our two, with our two kids. And so that's really how, how I ended up there. And it's really interesting when you go to places like Bougainville, and this is a, you know, a feature in a lot of travel writing, you you meet people that you think, how on earth did you end up li living and working in 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 places like Bougainville, sort of off the map, sort of beachcomber type places? So I worked as part of a small uh, government program that was helping the Bougainville government to kind of inch forward towards the referendum. So I was, you know, if we think of like every, if you think of the of the met the visual metaphor of the duck. I was one of the legs of the, the, of the duck that was kind of under the water that was helping sort of move it along, sometimes going left, sometimes going right, sometimes going backwards. But that was that was my job for, for three years. So is that sort of your specialty was uh, dealing with kind of post-conflict societies and attempting to form a resolution or a workable government after that? Like, Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of often, I'm in a place in Washington, D.C., where everyone says, you know, you have to say that you're an expert on something, and I, I part of me is very uh, reluctant to say I'm an expert on anything. But it's certainly my academic background. I wrote a doctorate on the construction of police services as part of after peace agreements. I've lived and worked in Timor Leste for a long time. I've got you know a passport that has got a lot of stamps in places that that are sort of famous in the headlines for when things go wrong. So I spent a bunch of time in Kosovo. And in 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 West Africa, um, and I'm sure being from Northern Ireland myself, and being having that that sort of character of having 
grown up in during the during the 80s and the 90s and the in the during the troubles i think probably impacted my career decisions but i, I probably have someone a little bit like you ran i've kind of moved and bopped around and done different things different things in my life yeah, it's, it's funny we almost crossed paths in kosovo this summer just uh, narrowly that's right yeah, you were we're there on the same time well i guess being from northern ireland you'd have a very interesting perspective on such societies as well because you've lived through it um i think that's right i mean i've got a clearly I mean, I'm not particularly proud of this, but like uh, people, everyone from Northern Ireland has got a very well-developed sense of identity, who we are and who we are not. And we are often always thinking of, you know, who's that person? What's he or she? Who's he or she from? Who's he or she connected to? What are their backgrounds? And that's a very, that's a coping mechanism, I think, that was, that was, that is very well honed within us. And you can see that similar type of, hyper identity taking places in places like Kosovo, um, in Timor-Leste and in, in Bougainville. And I was, it, it came rather easily to me, uh, when people would say, oh, I'm from place X or I'm connected to person Y, because that to me was one of the most important sort of bits of mental shorthand that one, that one needs in order to be able to work in these societies. And I think one of the themes in the in the the Bougainville book and in the the Timor Leste book is, I that make, made complete sense to me, and I could never really understand why it didn't make complete sense to everyone else that was working there, uh, because we were trying to create these sort of paper administrations, um, these sort of new administrations, and we were blind, so willfully blind, and sometimes actually not willfully blind, just didn't see it. Um, we didn't see many of the people I think I worked with um, are not, actually, I don't think that's fair. Um, some of the people that I didn't, that I worked with just couldn't see that there was, you know, an underneath of an underland of, uh, of connections and family histories. And, and um, I mean, everyone in, in, in Northern Ireland often says like, where, where do you come from? And it's a question that has a lot of, is freighted with a lot of, you know, intent and, and historical memory. It's exactly the same thing in Timor-Leste, exactly the same thing in Bougainville. As you said in the uh, Timor-Leste book that very few people actually left the Dili, the capital, to travel in the countryside, very few of the foreign workers. So it seemed like they were living in a bubble in the city, totally disconnected from the way things actually functioned, as, you say, as you're describing. Yeah, I mean, a book that I really uh, enjoyed reading, and I probably used it as a bit of a sort of guide was that book Imperial Life in the Emerald City that was written by a, a Washington Post uh, reporter. And he wrote about this sort of the green zone in, in Iraq and the fact that there was all these sort of foreigners, many of whom had never really left the United States before, who were creating their own little, little land. And it's easy to kind of fall into the trap of going to places like Dili or Port Moresby or Baghdad. And you go and you seek out like-minded counterparts. And you go and seek out people that look like you, talk like you, think like you. And in doing that, it, it sort of serves to kind of reinforce all the biases that you might have. I mean, there's a sort of white mischief in the, in the 1950s kind of quality t- to it as well. A kind of Burmese Day style club uh, type, of, type of arrangement to it as well. And I, I don't really know why. I mean, I, I find myself kind of rebelling against that and i think the most kind of profound reviews or comments that was written about the timor-leste book was when someone said gordon just couldn't understand why all the other people he was working with weren't as interested in timor-leste as he was and i i think that's always i'm a naturally curious person i'm a much more i'm a people person i like sort of going and going out and seeing people and I simply couldn't understand why, why not, I don't know if it's a majority, but certainly a large number of people that I worked with didn't want to leave the club, didn't want to leave the, the, the expat comfort zone. And, and I never, I probably never, never will. And I think it's been a theme in a lot of my writing is trying to really work out why that, why that is. It's so strange to me that you're in such an interesting place and, and there's no curiosity to see what it's actually like outside that bubble. I guess it because it shakes up those preconceived notions. And in some sense, it must make your job much more difficult because you have to realize that the 
your imagination of the place doesn't reflect the reality at all. So probably your plans are going to go awry as well. That's right. And I mean, I often, uh, I reread it recently as one of my favorite books with that uh, George Orwell's Burmese days. The, the club is safe. The club has all the things that you, that you know and are familiar with. Beyond the, the gates of the club is uncertainty. It's people speaking a language that you don't necessarily understand. And that puts you at a disadvantage as well. And, but if you stay within the club, and if you're blinkered for if your blinkers are particularly strong, you don't actually have to think about this tumult that is going on outside. And you can see a little bit of that in places like I spent a little bit of time there in 2002, but in somewhere like Afghanistan, which is it creates this groupthink because if you're in the club, you kind of think that everything's going along really, really well. Well, when if you actually look outside the walls, you can see that things are just much more complicated. And much more interesting. Speaking of clubs as well, that's uh, something else that I found interesting. You, the hotel that you stayed in. I'm trying to see if I have a quote here. On the opening pages of the the first book, you describe your hotel as a white cavernous building erected during Indonesian times. The hotel would not have been out of place in a Graham Greene novel. And very much of this experience sounds like something torn from his fiction. I mean, was he an influence on you for the way you saw these places and the way you wrote about them? I don't know if he was a direct influence on me, but certainly one of the most memorable encounters I've I've had in, in my life. And it was when I actually first read Graham Greene was I was in free I was in Freetown in Sierra Leone. And I remember meeting a journalist and he said, Look, this place is no different to what it was whenever Graham Greene wrote about it in the 1940s. And I went and I sought out sought out the book and read about it from there. I mean, I, I like, I really like Graham Greene. I really like John le Carre. I really like writers like that because they look at, they kind of look behind the corporate veil. They look behind the, the veil of government and the, the rational face that is, that is, that is put out. And they look and see what's going on behind it. And what's of course going on behind it is, is the usual the challenges that happen in every institution of you know politicking, bureaucratic knife fighting, some people getting along well with each other, romances, grudges. And I, I've always been fascinated by that, about institutions, about the the face that they that they project and what goes on behind the stage, behind behind the behind the face. I've probably read more Lacare than I have Green. Um, but I mean, a book that I reread, I read recently because someone said to me when they were, they'd read something I'd written. They said, this is something like Arman and Havana, uh, you know, the sense that, that the, the protagonist and it was just making up stuff just to keep people in London happy. And I'd never read the book and I, I read it. I really enjoyed it because I think it conveyed that slightly kind of madcap surrealistic world because when you work on these programs um these kind of government programs it could be for the united nations it could be in my case for the australian government it would be exactly the same for the canadian government you're under tremendous pressure to convey a good news story at all times everything's going great and this results in you coming up with these mad you know performance indicators that you use just like character in Armand and Havana, who's just, he's just, he's just, just telling whatever story he thinks London wants to know. And what you discover along the way in the novel is London doesn't really want to know what's actually happening. They just want the story that will suit, suit their own bureaucratic imperatives uh, as well. And it's, you know, I think it's definitely a theme that um, in a lot of my writing, which is the underneath of things, what goes on behind the, the, the behind the front of stage uh, actors, because it's often it's much more interesting, it's much more human, and I think it's much more believable because actually we're all. And I'm a flawed person. You're a flawed person. Institutions are naturally flawed, as well. We make mistakes. We learn from mistakes. I think it's much more interesting to try to render that reality. For, for people, and I think it really humanizes people because when you work for the, the United Nations or you work for government, you're often inclined to use big words like 
the government of Timor-Leste or the government of Papua New Guinea or the government of Bougainville as if it's some sort of machine that is perfectly well honed and is working in a, in a logical manner. Of course, the reality is, is that government is composed full of, of people who've got some good, some bad, some indifferent. And I think when you try to humanize places, then you actually get to understand some of the challenges that, that, that people that, that people have uh, it ha have in places like Timor Leste or in places like uh, places like Bougainville and the everyday dilemmas that, that that they have, which don't look anything like the air-conditioned reality that is being presented in government press releases, but it also doesn't really look like the way by which, because of the strictures of academia, you've got to try to present things as well, where everything has to have a theory, everything has to have a logic, everything has to be located in connection to to other people in the, the literature. What I really like about travel writing and about the types of books I've tried tried to write is that you actually present a much more dappled picture of, of, of people. You get the, se the sense that you see people with their strengths and also with their flaws. One of the things you did really effectively in the books as well, both of them, to, to pull in travel and to pull in a sort of an engagement with um, the society and the people who are living there and then put it up against this bureaucratic monolith and you know these paper reports that present an entirely different uh, view of a very neat and tidy place with five-year plans or, or even more elaborate plans of, what did you call it, plans of uh, actuarial exactitude kind of thing in a place where nothing works that way? Well, nothing works that way. I mean, I... Both Bougainville and Timor Leste and Northern Ireland, and I dare say everywhere where our, our listeners are, are working here, is composed of works in a relational way. Like who you know is really important in order to get things things done. Now, obviously, as the as the state becomes more institutionalized, there's a greater role of, of government in that. But in places where the state is pretty paper thin, hasn't really existed a lot before. It's really important to have these pers these personal connections, and it's really really difficult for the governments that are working there to actually acknowledge that that these that these um, exist, and it creates then these almost just palpably absurd situations where, on the one, it's a real split screen effect. On the one on one side of the screen, you've got this complicated personal dynamics reality, and on the other side, you've got all these people that are sitting. Over their laptops, trying to bash out reports, uh, presenting a form of reality that, in their heart of hearts, they they know is not real. And what and I I reread the Timor Leste book yesterday. It's been a long time since I since I have read it. But one of the themes I I have in the book, and I located in you know bars and coffee shops. A lot of the scenes are set in bars and coffee shops, and I find bars and coffee shops really interesting because it's where people actually are much more candid about what mm. things are, are happening. And then I try to split screen or sort of show a disjuncture between what they actually say in the bars and coffee shops and what happens between nine to nine, nine to five. And I, you get a sense, I think, for both books, just how uncomfortable I felt doing that because it was just, it was a different, it was a, it's a, it's, it's such a different type of reality that it's really, really difficult to, to render. I think what you also see from the, from both books is the unhappiness that this engenders in people who are working in these places, who are trying to jam together this react, this sort of actual reality that they encounter. Some of which is really good. Some of which is really trying. Some of which is frustrating. Some of which is enlightening with the, that their lived reality with this bureaucratic reality that they're trying to trying to kind of project in it. There's a tremendous amount of sadness and ennui in in places like Timor Leste and in, in Papua New Guinea. Uh, real sense of kind of end of the line for a lot of people who who are working there. And I think that touches on a lot of themes that are in that are in Graham Greene's novels that are sort of unhappy people in a place far away um, who probably didn't plan to make it to make it there in their lives. Yeah, there must be a terrible sense of disconnect, you know, with your having to cobble together these reports to satisfy to get somebody off your back in a distant city when you know the reality is completely different and you know what you're doing is absolutely futile in that sense. 
I mean, but, but that, 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 that actually gets to the, the one of the, it's, it's my favorite story. And I actually, I stopped myself from, from telling it in, in both books or in other things I write, which is I met once in West Africa, a woman who was working as the gender advisor to this police, United Nations police commissioner. And the United Nations this police commissioner was an unreconstructed uh tyrant you know in lots of ways like he was not someone who was buying into all the the swaddled words about um what what they were doing but she was the gender advisor she's a really really nice woman and in a bar one night she said to me you know i know he is not reading all these reports i'm writing and, and i said and i said i'm sure you you're probably right but how do you know how can you be so sure and she said because i put and you know listeners can now sort of insert the most foul word that they can think of into the second page of each of these reports. I've been doing it for the last three months and he's never sort of called me up on it. And I thought that's a ballsy move on, on her part, but I think it gets to the point that there's just these thousands kind of people, you know, like monkeys sort of produce, trying to write Shakespeare that are writing, presenting this air conditioned view of reality that a, they know doesn't really conform to reality and B, no isn't even being read so there's nothing more frustrating i think as anyone who tries to do writing to know that all the work that you're doing isn't even going to be read even isn't even going to be commented upon i think you summed that up perfectly and you cited uh in i can't remember which of the two books uh, of all the reports available on the world bank website close to a third of them have never been opened not even once that's just astonishing it's astonishing and it's also made me really sad because i think some of the reports i wrote for the world bank are in that category as well <laughs> but then it's just madness ryan you know like why don't we actually say well if no one's reading them let's stop producing them no one's ever actually taken a, a pause and said if we're not actually if no one's reading these reports why are we commissioning them it's it's just the the the, the, the bureaucratic imperative is so strong it defies rationality sometimes or it defies the um you know the metrics of of readership if you were in the commercial book publishing industry and you, your first book had produced zero readers, you would be unlikely to want You might reconsider your career, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Instead, it's actually in this, the mad metrics of this world is probably a good indication because that means you can get something well, I, want, I had a couple of things I wanted to ask you in details about um, the aid, the world of aid and how these projects actually work with some some great quotes from your book. But before that, I want to ask a, a couple of questions about travel. I was really interested to hear about um, Arawa, this huge mining operation in Bougainville. Tell, tell us a bit, a bit about that and you know what it, what it was then and what it looks like now. Arawa was a or is a a purpose-built town. So let me let me go let me sort of go back a little bit before. So in the 1930s and the 1940s, anthropologists came to Bougainville because it was the one of the far, it was one of the quote unquote blankest parts of, of of the map. It hadn't been filled in. It was not a lot of contact between Bougainvillians and outsiders. In the 1950s and the 1960s, geologists came to Bougainville and they discovered one of the most largest commercially viable seams of copper and gold in the world. These seams were to be found high up on a mountain range, uh, the largest mountain, which was called Panguna. There was then the question about how do you actually try to extract this copper from, from, the, from, the, from the ground? How do you extract these resources from the ground? And those were the days when now it's a mining as a fly in, fly out business effectively. But those were the days then where you actually created an entire ecosystem around a mine in order to sort of service the, service the mine. So in a place where there had been very, very little contact, there was erected a Australian style town called Arawa that looks exactly like an Australian town today. And Thousands of, of newcomers came in, some from many from Australia, many from elsewhere in, in Papua New Guinea. And it was like throwing a giant stone into this very, very un, undisturbed water. And they created 
an, an almost an idealized version of an Australian town in the tropics, but they also drew from other colonial outposts elsewhere. So they created one place that was called Happy Valley that was clearly modeled upon the Happy Valley in, uh, in Kenya uh, that the British had. But they, they lock, stock and barrel took all everything that would be familiar to an Australian and just plonked it in the, in the so the town has had wide boulevards, it had churches, it had a Masonic temple, it had cinemas, it had a, a hospital, it had a darts league, it had a set of squash courts. And for 10, 15 years, this town remained this, this kind of idyll. Um, uh, and I, I interviewed in the book some of the people that, 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 that lived and worked in Arawa of that time. And behind the town was the Panguna mining operation, where this 24-hour, seven days a week, just cathedral of noise and light where the the copper and the gold would be ex extracted and it was also a place that really put bougainville on the map so uh the queen queen elizabeth and prince philip visited in 1974 uh hamid innes who was a adventure thriller writer who i used to love as, as a boy visited as well it was this time capsule of it was this sort of lock stock and barrel extraction of australia uh into into bougainville and then it all fell apart one of the features of of bougainville has been this desire to be separate or this desire to be to be independent so bougainville was an important place during the second world war and when and in 1962 bougainvillians told the delegation that they wanted the united states to control Bougainville because they had fond memories of the American troops that were there during the Second World War. One Richard Milhouse Nixon was one of the was one of the the soldiers that that fought uh, in Bougainville during that time. So there's always been this, been this sense of of separateness in Bougainville, and couple that with a kind of frustration at and a perception that one wasn't receiving the correct uh, dues and remuneration from the mine. It set the stage for for this conflict. And Arawa went from being almost this kind of little white, little house on the prairie style, kind of Pleasantville, Arcadia type place, to all the people, all the many of the expats were evacuated. And I write in the book about just some kind of it's like the kind of sort of like piano playing at the on the Titanic type stuff, which is one month there, there's a everyone in the golf club is complaining about too many squatters that are up, that are on the 18th hole one month later they're all being they're all being evacuated as bougainville itself descends into this very very messy and very very localized uh conflict that had many many shapes and forms to it but i was really curious to see what Arrow will look like uh today and so i took a trip uh a bunch of trips, but I took one trip that I write about in the book with a, a good friend of mine, a guy called Eddie Mohin, who's a former commander in the, the Bougainville Revolutionary Army that sort of fought one of the protagonists in the conflict. And what's really interesting when you go to Arawa is that it is a town of ghosts. It is You can still see many of the imprints of that 1970s, 1980s Australiana that is there. So there's a, there's a big painting that, or there's a painting on a gable wall for Pepsi, the choice of a new generation, which was from 1986. There are advertisements for Winfield cigarettes. There's a mobile petrol station that the, the frontage of that is, is still is still there. There's a fish and chip shop. There's a sign for a fish and chip shop. There's no fish and chip shop, but the sign is, is still there. And there's little stenciled remembrances of what things used to be like so we find in the middle of the jungle that something a stencil sign for the sub aqua club because Bougainville was, was famous for its for its diving uh back then and we took a trip to arovo which was one of these holiday islands that were there that was styled i think on maui or somewhere in fiji um and went to see what what it looked like there so there's certainly there's more than evocations in, in, in arawa and what's really interesting about the place is that it, it still feels a little bit stuck in time. It still feels like the 1970s and the 1980s. I mean, if you went to the 
the, the, the hometown that, that I'm from in Northern Ireland, you would have to look at pictures to see what the 1970s and the 1980s looked like. When you go, when you're, when you go to Iowa, you see what the 1970s and the 1980s looked look like because it's just imprinted and metabolized on the architecture and the, the shape of the town. So the squash courts, for example, are still there, but they've been repurposed into stores that are selling, that are selling, selling goods. Uh, the Masonic temple is no more. It's being swallowed up by the, by the jungle. I really like abandoned places like that and this, the sort of nostalgia that clings to them, but also the, yeah, the snapshot into the past that no longer exists. One of the things that I found interesting too, with your friend, Eddie, you said, uh, I initially thought Eddie's memories of Arawa would be reminiscent of accounts of life in apartheid era, South Africa, or the deep South of the United States, but it wasn't so like he had fond memories of this place. I think that's what, I mean, all conflicts, when you kind of think about them are driven by logics that don't really make sense. And Eddie's was one of the, had very, very fond memories at that time. And at the same time, he was sufficiently exercised and annoyed about, about the, the sort of discrimination that was going on in Arawa uh, at that time to, you know, to take up arms in the Bougainville Revolutionary Army. And it, I think there is something interesting that we all have about the time before conflict. And what that a halcyon time that, that 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 we had. I mean, my parents don't shy away from talking about the problems that they had as as Catholics in in Northern Ireland growing up in the nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, and nineteen sixties. But they often talk about, oh, it was a lot better. It was a lot better then because there wasn't, you know, the, the troubles hadn't hadn't started. And I think there's a bit of that nostalgia that that is that is in Bougainville and is is in people like Eddie because they look to that time when there was much more money around, when there was much more quote unquote development around, almost as the kind of compass bearing that they want to return to. Well, you t you talked about that too, like people Australians who went back there decades later, sometimes with their children, to revisit a time when they had been happy, you know, and you called it an irrecoverable time that many struggled to find again when they went to Australia. So they're also casting back. I think that's a dilemma. A typical traveler's dilemma in a sense, right? Like you to go back to a place where you're really happy and experienced, you know, some life transforming event. And should you go back or should you just let it remain a memory? Should you see what it looks like now, this crumbled place of broken dreams, or should you just let it say stay what it was and look back on it yeah. fondly? Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed Paul Thoreau's writing and I enjoyed really enjoyed his book Ghost Train to the Eastern Star when he returns back to the yeah. kind of scene of where he went you know, 25, 30 years previously. And you see that in a lot of expat heavy places, people are getting paid more than they would in Australia or in, you know, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, there's a, they have a set of disposable income and they have a set of skills that they are using there, which are just not transferable back in Australia. So what was really striking was when a lot of the, these expat families were evacuated in the late eighties, they returned to Australia. And just like a returning soldier after the Second World War, they find that their skills weren't weren't useful there anymore. Their earnings dropped um, dramatically. They had relevance deprivation sy syndrome. They were talking about this place far away that nobody really wanted to um, wanted to kind of talk about anymore. And all they had were these sets of memories. And what was really striking is how melancholy stalked them. I think in the years after their time in Bougainville. And the sense of returning, and I did not, I did not meet any of the people who actually did return. But some of the people that we meet in the book say that they, they were trying to recreate the lost fountain of youth. That, and one of the people that I say that I do meet in the book is this kind of half Irish, half Maori sort of New Zealand fellow who was brought was brought up in Bougainville and had returned. 20 or 30 years later, after a pretty, um, you know, his life's like a Frederick Forsyth novel, you know, he was doing this and that in, in, uh, in Africa, but he returned to try to set up a beach resort again, and to try to entirely recreate what Arawa looked like in, in the late 80s. Yes, it's, it's a hard thing to try to recreate the past, you know, that's, you're clinging to something that's just an ideal, and you can never bring that into reality, no matter how hard you strive for it, you can I think you can approximate it, but that ideal will always remain just out of reach. 
That's right, and and you forget all the all the the sort of bad things that were that were in the past as well. It becomes this kind of sepia toned. Yeah, it's, it's like a trip, right? Like, yeah. So, but it becomes this sort of Camelot in your mind that you want to try to reach to, and you can never really get as far as you want to. Yeah, yeah. So it's much like travel, where the the miseries of the waiting and the the tedium of you know sitting on a, an uncomfortable bus that sort of drifts away, and even the the disasters end up taking on uh, for the rich colors because they're the best stories in the end. Yeah. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about too was uh, we, you mentioned her earlier, Beatrice Blackwood. She's an interesting character and her story kind of illuminates something that you, the things that you were saying about the difference between academic and, and popular writing. So first of all, maybe you could situate her, like tell us, tell us who Beatrice Blackwood was and what she was doing there. So Beatrice Blackwood was, I studied at Oxford and I did not know who Beatrice Blackwood was until I moved to Bougainville. And when I discovered that she was actually a very prominent Oxford-based anthropologist. And I've discovered her because someone I write about in the book, I write about there's a little library where I took a lot, read, borrowed a lot of books from and read a lot of the history of Bougainville through sitting in this, in this library. And the most stolen book in this library was an out of print, was, a, was an out of print old, densely written 600 pages of very, very arid text called Both Sides of Buka Passage. And it was written by, by Beatrice Blackwood. She w- lived in Bougainville in 1929 and 1930, and she collected all sorts of artifacts and stories uh, of, of, of Bougainville. And what was really interesting about reading the book, Ryan, was that A, the extent to which Beatrice Blackwood was kind of alive in Bougainville much more than she was in, in, in Oxford. But people would look at the photographs of, the, of, of Bougainville at that time when, you know, Bougainvillians were wearing kind of, you know, loincloths and, um, and, and the like. And they would look back at it and see that there was the kind of it was a memory that was created by this by this Oxford anthropologist, and they looked at it as a kind of linkage between between the present between the present and the past. The book is really hard going. It is not an easy book to read, um, and she comes across in the book as a bit kind of schoolmarmish and a bit sort of no. It has that sort of omniscience that a lot of academic writing has. So I. I found the book a trudge to kind of, you know, to get to the end. I felt like I should award myself something by the time I got to the end of the book. But then I spent a little bit of time in Oxford in the archives at the Pitt Rivers Museum. Some of the some of the archives is also online, so you don't actually have to go to Oxford to do it, though it's a wonderful archive to to work in. But in the archives are Beatrice Blackwood's fieldwork diaries and the letters that she wrote to her supervisor. She was this tremendously gifted writer of, of letters, which is a lost art, I think, that we, that we have. And in these letters, this woman comes alive. She is spontaneous. She is funny. She is past remarkable. She has a, you know, a sense of eye-rolling irony that, that, you, that you don't get from the, the book itself. And I find myself developing a bit of a kind of 90-year-old across the generations crush on the woman because she was just fascinating in how she described things. And she described her own self-doubt, um, which is something that ri- is riddled, riddled through most um, ac- academics. Uh, she talks about the problems that she has with other anthropologists. She has these really amusing and scathing uh, character portraits of the expats that she, that she, that are in Bougainville at the time. She talks about some of the dilemmas that I was facing, where the Australian colonial power then is kind of writing these really glowing reports about how everything's going well in Bougainville and sending them to the League of League of Nations. Her supervisor, who's called Arthur Thompson, writes back to her at some point. And he said, "These these letters are terrific. These are the funniest." most entertaining things I've read in a long time. Would you like to publish them? And she says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You're like, and I think it gets to this real dilemma that we all have as writers, but particularly people who are working as academic writers or writers or scribes for government, 
which is presenting reality as it is, is quite a leap in the dark. It's quite a career defining um, activity. And it's why a lot of people don't, you know, don't do it. And they instead just bottle it up and drink, you know, drink excessively of a, you know, of a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. Yeah, she sounded like she had remarkable powers of persuasion, like her ability to get people to talk in detail about their their customs and their secrets and taboos. I mean, the the fixation on sex and sexual practices in anthropology of that time is pretty amazing. Like, could you imagine bar- barging into some stranger's house and asking these questions? Now, well, now I think people would probably want to talk about their every detail of their their fetishes and identity or whatever. But I mean, back then, I mean, back then it's just extraordinary. I mean, one of the things I find in the in the in the archive in Oxford was this twenty eight page guide to fieldwork and all the questions you had to to ask, and it was everything from kind of standard details about a person's height and kind of the the size of their cranium to the you know really really personal questions about you know copulation techniques you know love making type <laughs> techniques and i just couldn't i i could never ask those questions and yet she clearly went in and did ask those questions and she produced pages after pages of these islanders kind of stories and she brought them all back back to to oxford she was she, she was clearly a person of absolutely remarkable gifts and someone who's almost like a kind of indiana jones type character in a way you point out to the the disconnect between the, the life she was living and what she was writing about to her friends and and mentor in her letters and and this academic sludge that she published and you say she embodied the enduring bind of the academic wanting to be read, but feeling unable to write in a manner that would make one likely to be read beyond the narrowest of constituencies. These stories that that have to be cut out are basically, they they explain the lifeblood of a culture. Like that, this is how things actually function. This is what has meaning to people. Yeah. I mean, I think it gets, it, it does get cut out. And I really wanted to sort of juxtapose the challenge that Beatrice Blackwood had when she's writing all this good stuff secretly it's like the equivalent of the whatsapp messages of, of the present day when people are narrating their own challenges in an everyday way to friends and the public face by which you you present it and i contrast in, in the book her reality was my reality in a way which was we were all experiencing this really fascinating maddening life but yet when we actually had to present our official sensing our official facing sense, mute, we were more mute. We were more, we, we were painting the world in really vivid tones in private, and we painted them in extremely muted, sort of brine tones whenever we, um, whenever we did it in public. And I think it's just this time honored dilemma that, that, that we have. And it's something I find interesting in myself. I mean, I, I struggle with this as well. And I find when I, read Beatrice's diaries, I find a sense of comfort in them because the challenges she had in 1929 and 1930 were not particularly different to the challenges I had in 2016, 2017. Yeah, it's a bit like reading a, a writer's letters or writer's letters to each other, right? You see this this other side of the successful face that uh, that's presented. Are you a reader of, of letters generally? I'm a little bit. I mean, I know there's a new set of book of John le Carre's letters that he's, that he's got. He's got out. And I remember reading Paul Thoreau's book of his sort of Servidia's shadow and, and and there, but yeah, I mean they reveal a much more a less polished version of 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 of, of reality and the self doubt. I think that all people who uh, many people who work creating something, whether that be in academia or in popular writing, just suffer from on a on a on a everyday everyday basis. Um, none of that self doubt comes across in Beatrice's book it comes across she comes across as a know-it-all and someone who just was born to write this book actually when you look at her her letters and her and her diary she she comes across as and as, as human as flawed as as we all as we all are and it's probably one of my frustrations with how governments work and how academia works is that we don't feel empowered to be able to admit when we don't know things it has to be this kind of omniscient third person narrator um, that, that 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 takes place. It, it must be very difficult to do that because at the same time, some of the job descriptions sound so vague. Like in Bougainville, you wrote that 
The, the role of advisor is to serve as a cross between motivational coach, knowledgeable professor, repository of ideas, modeler of appropriate bureaucratic behavior, and shoulder to cry on. So, I mean, how do you sum that up in a report? That's right. Um, well, the short answer is you probably, you know, you don't. You sort of present a different version of reality about how everything's going really well. I mean, I think to government is really complex. So many moving parts, so much politics that it's marinated and steeped in. And so it's actually easier just to present a very kind of C-spot run, Peter and Jane, uh, famous five, go on a trip view of, view of reality rather than um, the complicated one that it, that it is. I mean, because presenting that reality in a, in a complicated, contingent, messy way that it is takes a lot of time. And it takes a lot of narrative skill and writerly gifts in order to be able to, you know, to do it. When you're working for government, you get three or four days to write these reports. You don't have the time to spend all your time talking about uh, complications because in your heart of hearts, you know that the people that you're writing these reports for don't want don't want to hear of the complications, just like the, just like the characters in London and in Armonica then. Well, it's a shame because those things that are left out give give such an insight into what's happening. Like this, this is one of the things I really liked about the Timor Leste book. The contrast you paint between the expectations of the people who are the donors or the people implementing these aid projects and the people on the ground and what they think they're getting out of it. So, like uh, you write for for the thousands of international visitors with aid budgets to expend, places like Timor Leste are like a blank canvas on which to paint their dreams. So aren't they there for, to fulfill the dreams of the people that came to help, or are they kind of imposing their own? They have a, they have a preconceived idea, it seemed, of what they think this society needs, and they're going to come in and you know build capacity or whatever. That's right, and often reality begins for them in Timor Leste whenever they got off the plane at at, uh, at Dili Airport. But even the name of Dili Airport, which is called Nicolau Lobato, is an indication that. Past is the past is really important, and it's important to understand the history of any of any country, particularly one of, such as Timor Leste, which has got this really complicated but important to know um, history. And sometimes I think it's just easier to sort of tune all that stuff out, to kind of put your blinkers on and work there for a period of time. And again, I mean, I, in the book on Timor Leste, I went through the the archives in. Um, of the Portuguese colonialists, because Timor Leste was a former um, Portuguese colony, and they had the same challenges in the 1880s as Beatrice Blackwood did in in Bougainville in 1929-1930, which is a challenge of presentation. How do you present things that are that are that are going well? Um, because they had to present their reports to Lisbon or to to Macau, where the colonial power was was located. And everything's going great, just like. Beatrice had to do in 1929, just like I had to do in 2015, 2016, 2017. The, I find this when people try to, I mean, the Northern Irish are very, very knowledgeable. In, I think it's a good thing about our history. And so when people get little facts wrong, it really, really annoys us. And East Timor is a bit like that as well. It's a place with a really detailed, complicated history. And just like you couldn't come into Northern Ireland and try to impose something upon us without knowing that history, exactly the same thing holds for, you know, for, for Timor Leste. One of the interesting things I think in Timor Leste is that over, more than 100,000 Timorese suffered conflict-related deaths during the Indonesian occupation. Yet the biggest friend that Timor Leste has is Indonesia. So it works in a completely different way to the way, sense that we should, that we think that it should work. And the reason why that is, is because many families in Timor Leste had some members worked on one side of the ledger and other members of the family were on the other side of the ledger. But then in a small society, they've got to kind of work together in order to try to forge the nation ahead. And so it's really important to know who did what, um, who's connected to who. And I found that remarkable, the willingness of people to forget and to seemingly forgive these people who did them terrible harms, whether their own compatriots or the, the Indonesians or this ability to just move on and and leave that in the past, more or less. There's a remarkable sense of kind of forgiveness in Timor Leste. I mean, and I think I sometimes I find it just a little bit too much in in, in a way because there was so much forgiving and forgetting it. But I think the Timorese are masters of kind of realpolitik. They, if you look at where Timor Leste is in, in a map, it's 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 just it's enclosed within Indonesia, and they made the very very pragmatic 
decision that in order to kind of forge ahead, they couldn't be stuck in the past. They had to kind of forge this relationship with Indonesia. And in some ways, it makes a lot of sense um, for them. Many Timorese speak Indonesian. They speak more Indonesian than they do English uh, or Portuguese. You know, you can't change geography. You can't change the, uh, the place where you are. That's very practical. They have a very realpolitik approach to dealing with these aid agencies, too, by the sound of it. Like you talked about uh, a Timorese policeman. This, <laughs> I really like this story. It, you write that I had been told by one senior officer that he couldn't engage meaningfully with the community until the government bought him a karaoke machine and a sound system. <laughs> this is a guy who knows what he wants. Yeah, I mean, these guys are are masters at, and you see a little bit of this in PNG as well, which is they realize that donors have money. There's a bit of a cargo cult mentality that comes with donors. And they think just pragmatically, I'm going to try to get as much as I can as I can out of it, because everyone knows that the donors need to spend their money each year. Government is not like a business where you, if you return money to shareholders, you get rewarded for that. You've got to expand the budget. And that means whenever I was in Timor-Leste, there was a lot of money that was being spent on sound machines or, you know, karaoke machines. And a large part of me kind of thought, well, you know, good on you. That's um, at least you're getting some material benefit uh, out of it as well. What's also interesting about Timor Leste is you've got what countries come a promising with. So once a year, you would have this annual donors conference where representatives from everywhere from you know Australia to Zimbabwe would arrive promising, promising things. Um, so you know Angola arrived and promised an air link between Dili and Luanda. Yeah, you know you had Nigeria arrived and offered up its country as a model of clean government. You know, the Austrians arrived and they proposed to proposed to help a, a, a set up a kind of a tenor choir. I mean, almost just stuff that's just ripe for satire and ripe for flattery. And I was there the day when Jackie Chan showed up and his job was to try to dissuade Tim Rees from kind of joining martial arts gangs. And it was just this. All human life was there, this sort of, you know, div, you know, pantomime that was going on um, every day in Timor Leste. And I. I think I've got an irreverent streak to me, and I think a lot of the the things I saw just completely fascinated me, and also just like you stuff you just couldn't make up. You know, if if this was fiction, and you said I'm going to set a scene in a in a conference where Jackie Chan is going to show up and teach martial arts, and the Polish are going to show up and give offer on a on a navy, and the Austrians are going to show up with a set of of the chamber orchestra helping to help you, I think that's just bizarre. Yet that's what that's what happened. And these places are just ripe with random stuff that goes on like that. It, it's, it's hilarious stories. I mean, for a writer, it's gold, but it also kind of throws into question the this is all taxpayer money at some point coming from governments like mine, for example, throwing throwing money at these places and spending it on insane things for the sake of, I guess, presenting the appearance that they're helping or doing good in the world. Like, is there any hope for these sorts of programs? Like, are they useful and if they fail to impose sort of managerial system on a country, on countries like this, like if they, or if they go around attempting to impose managerial systems on places that don't function at all that way, that function by through personal networks, how can they fix conflict zones like South Sudan or these sorts of places? Like, I mean, I think it's just a, I think it's a real, it's a real dilemma. I mean, first of all, I'd say it's like I think government is really useful. I mean, I'm, uh, it's really important. It's by its very nature inefficient. And we can see that. You can see it here in the United States, but you can see it almost also in the UK where there's lots of talk now about, or didn't we waste some money through COVID by you know getting this PPE that didn't work? Or So I don't think it's just the particular aid part of, of, of government that is inefficient. Government is by its very nature inefficient. And the challenge for people working within government is to acknowledge that because governments very, very rarely admit their admit their failures. I mean, I I, I write in, especially in the, the book on Timor Leste about that there is a secret sauce, an X factor for working well in places like Timor Leste. And this applies to Bougainville as well. It applies to South Sudan. It applies to, you know, pick, you know, pick the country that's in your mind and, and put this in the sentence which is to get to know people, to be interested 
in the place to work to accept that it is a, a set of relationships that undergird how everything work and both books i think are uh, an appeal for time um for people to spend a lot of time in places in order to kind of get to know it and to you know to um you know to understand it i uh, still feel like i'm constantly learning about timor leste and, and about bougainville but i've had some pretty good teachers and the teachers were the, the the timorese that i met and i write about in the book and the bougainvillians that i met and write about in the book i tried to spend as little time as i could in both places with people who looked like me thought like me um talked like me because that would just end up reinforcing things that i knew already or things i thought that i knew this, this approach does pay off because you described a, a couple successful projects one one of which was i think a water pump in a village you know small-scale projects like this where people actually did come together and and work with uh with the people who live there in the ma- in the manner that you're speaking of i think there's a ton of really successful aid projects the difficulty is though it's like the story of the boy who cried wolf if you're constantly saying everything is going well then when something actually does go well nobody's likely to you know, to, to, to believe you. There's a ton of really, really great aid projects that work with the grain. They work with the grain of communities. They don't try to impose uh, a reality that doesn't really exist in either in Ottawa or Berlin or, or Washington, D.C. either, but this very hyper-logical reality. Someone said to me once, you know, what's your best advice for trying to get involved in kind of you know, this line of work. And I think the answer is just get on a plane and kind of go somewhere and get to know a place. Don't be as worried about your resume or don't try to get a, an entire set of passport stamps that you know that can take you from South Sudan to Kosovo to Cambodia, because that's a that's a hippie trail that people have been on as well. But actually spend a lot of time and to get to know people and and just see how places work because they don't work the way that we'd like to think they do, but they do work. Don't look for all the time for institutions that are tangible. Don't look all the time for for government institutions that have a nameplate and a door and somebody behind it um, with a computer. But to understand that big family networks, big relational networks, then you need to work out how how that works uh, and work with that. Yeah, I think that's that's good. That's a really optimistic note to end on. So what's uh, what's next for you? Travels or another book? I feel with the Bougainville book, it was almost like that kind of difficult second album syndrome. I wrote the book on Timor Leste reasonably quickly. I'm probably having, I'm probably having sort of my own version of kind of rose tinted memories on on this. But it, I wrote it in about six to nine months. It came out reasonably well, like a kind of well formed pellet. I find writing the Bougainville book a lot more challenging. I often thought sec, second album syndrome was a bit of a was a bit of a myth, and I think I. Now I believe that it's absolutely the case. I'm going to try to write a crime novel um, because I find a lot of the these places are just ripe for storytelling. A lot of the stories that I have in my mind or stories that I would tell over over a drink or over a, a cup of coffee are stories that you actually can't really write down in a sort of nonfiction type environment. So I'm trying to use some of those stories and trying to locate it within the the structure of a crime novel. And to touch on some of the themes that really interest me, which is can institutions talk about realities, the power dynamics that are that are in it, the kind of golden handcuffs that many people who work in these places kind of suffer from. And it's set in Kosovo. So that was why I was there in um earlier on this year when you were walking the when you were walking the Cursed Mountains. And it was fascinating to go back to Kosovo because whenever I was I would it's set in 2000, 2001. And when I was there, Kosovo had the, Pristina, the capital of Kosovo, had the feel of being like Vienna during the, you know, just after the Second World War, sort of Berlin, you know, this city of thousands of internationals, um, all these kind of four by fours and land cruisers, everybody chasing around, you know, the kind of Sri Lankan traffic cop on the, on the main square directing people. When you go back to Kosovo, in 2022, there is no imprint of an international presence really to speak of anymore. There's a giant U.S. embassy outside of Pristina, but it, so it was really jarring to go back, just as it was jarring for the the, the mine workers in in Iowa to go back and see what it see what it looked like. Now, there is a lot more money in Kosovo. There's a lot more 
dynamism in Kosovo, the Kosovars are sort of getting on with it. It was really interesting to go to some of the haunts that I used to be go to in 2000, 2001. So one place is called was called the Kukri Bar, and it was this set up by this kind of British Gurkha. And it was this Rick's Cafe style place where everybody would call, would go every night and you know had flags on the you know, flags of all the contingents on the walls. There was always a, a soccer game being being played. And it was not a kebab joint. I said to the person, yeah, this used to be the, the cookery bar. This used to be the kind of the great um, hangout. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay. He wasn't really interested. And I kind of reflect on that, that. It was as if we were never there, Ryan. And I think that that's the moral of this, which is we, we spend all our time in the here and now concentrating on things that are urgent, but we don't actually concentrate on what is important. But it, it's, it's something I've always wanted to do. I really like crime fiction. Um, I was brought up kind of reading, you know, a lot of Alistair MacLean and Hammond Innes and people who set their stories in quote unquote exotic locales. And so I'm sure I've been influenced by that childhood reading and trying to set, set a novel um, set there and located in this world of UN peacekeeping, uh, donors, knife fighting with each other that I, I know pretty well. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting approach. It's sort of a Paul Theroux approach of you know a travel book and then a novel based uh, that takes place in in some of the places that he's been through with uh, all that added color. He seems to write the novel when he is working on his travel book, so it's astonishingly prolific. Yeah, yeah, something to aspire to. Well, thank you very much for your time. This is really interesting. It's a interesting insight into a world that few uh, people see, you know, in in uh, the newspapers and. Uh, advertisements and pitches, but we don't often get a glimpse into uh, from an insider's perspective, plus exotic locations, you know, what more can you ask? No, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, it is a fascinating world. I think it's like all worlds that we, that we look at, you know, whether it be like our favorite kind of sports team or the government, you kind of look, you wonder what's really going on behind it. And I've always been really fascinated by that question about what is actually going on behind things. The truth is much more interesting. Um, and a lot of the time, it's actually a lot more encouraging than, than we like to think it is. Yeah, you've certainly left that impression. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that world with us. And good luck with the audiobook recording there. I hope I haven't, uh, hope I haven't robbed you of your voice at this point. No, no we're going to go for it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanmurdoch.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated. Thank you.